Uh, if you're new to Citadel Square, welcome. My name is Steve. We are uh, glad that you are here and chose to spend your Sunday morning with us. If you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it and turn to the book of Luke. The book of Luke. I want you to find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the New Testament. We're going to be taking a look here at uh, Luke 1 to verse 6. We're about 18 years from our last um, recorded account that Luke gave for us, where it was Jesus as a middle schooler. So we saw that last week, and now we're going to pause, and again, Luke is going to jump. We're going to skip over really any of John the Baptist's young, uh, you know, middle school, high school, uh, early adulthood years, similar with Jesus, and we're going to encounter really where the beginning of Luke's story and the action starts. Here is Luke chapter 3, with John the Baptist coming on to the scene. We're just going to look at uh, the first six verses here. This whole chapter really summarizes uh, John's ministry for us. Luke takes John's ministry and kind of compresses it into one chapter. You really get one other moment from John when John is in prison and asks Jesus, are you the one uh, that we should expect or should we expect another? So uh, we come to the end in a sense of John's ministry in one chapter. You don't get a lot in Luke about the fun stuff about John, the wearing camel's fur and leather belts and eating locusts and honey, which I know you've been wanting to know why he does that. But uh, Matthew and Mark give you that uh, image of John. You don't get any physical descriptions of John and Luke, uh, and specifically Luke chapter 3. What you get in, in uh, Luke's account here is very, very particular to what John is doing. Uh, John comes onto the scene. Now, I want to remind us, just since if you haven't been with us throughout, you know, pre-Christmas as we um, move through the beginning of this book and the Christmas season, I want you to remind you of what John uh, was, or what the angel said John was, would do. Are you in Luke 3? Okay, you're there? Keep, come back with me to Luke 1 just for a minute. I tricked you. I know. Just hang, hang with me. Uh, Luke chapter 1. Look with me at verse 16. This is the message that Gabriel gave to Zechariah. Luke 1.16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now go forward uh, into Zechariah's song over in, still in chapter 1, since this chapter so long. Look at 176 with me. Zechariah's prophecy about this boy says this, You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Well, move over now to Luke chapter 3 with me. What does it mean for John to be the forerunner? What does it mean for John to come before Jesus Christ? What does it mean for John to prepare people to meet Jesus? That's really the question that we've got to wrestle with. Not so much the uniqueness of John and who he is and that angels announced uh, his birth, that he came in a miraculous way through Zechariah and Elizabeth in their old age. We need to consider for ourselves and really for this passage here this morning, what does it mean for somebody to come onto the scene to prepare us to meet Jesus? Uh, I have been a preacher and teacher for probably the past 16, 17 years. Uh, and I have a weird relationship with preaching. 
I didn't plan to be a preacher. I didn't expect to be a preacher. I sort of stumbled into preaching, stumbled into by the sovereign providence of God and his will, right? All that. Uh, but preaching is a weird occupation. Uh, let me just take you behind the music. Remember behind the music? Both of you do. That's okay. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Uh, I've always, preaching is a weird thing because when I came up in the church, I really thought preaching was just public speaking. And there's a part of that. You can't, you got to string good words together to talk to people. Uh, I thought preaching when I was coming up was primarily education which it's a part of that too. But there's something else, I think, in preaching uh, that I aim at. We, every week, we take some of the young guys on our staff team, we bring them all together in the room, and we pick randomly a message from any, some random preacher somewhere, and we ask, what's happening in this moment? What is this individual doing? What is going on as you are listening to this individual? Was that good preaching or bad preaching? Was that helpful preaching or unhelpful preaching? And the longer I have, been, uh, I have been in this position of preaching week to week, uh, a text like this really shows us what is happening in the preaching moment. What do you expect when you come to church? Why in the world would we spend 45 plus minutes talking about God and his word? Why would all of you people come and sit down and listen to God's word being taught? What's going on? Why would this be such a, a central focus? You go to any church. And there's some portion in every church, in every place, where somebody will get up and say something. What should be happening in that moment? Do you know? Have you ever thought about that? I think about this stuff all the time. Maybe you've never thought about it. But what we get here in John, in Luke's account of John the Baptist, is a moment where John the Baptist tells us what the goal of preaching is. He gives us principles here that reveal to us who John is because John's essential job is to talk to a whole bunch of people, as many as he can, and to point them to Christ. So what ought to be happening in the preaching moment? That's what you're going to look at here in Luke chapter 3, 1 to 6. You with me so far? So this is important for you because at some point you're going to leave this church and you're going to go somewhere else and you're going to sit in another church that preaches by God's grace, God's word, that preaches the true gospel and you're going to have to ask yourself some questions of what is happening in this moment. God, what should I be learning? Is this good or bad? Is this helpful or unhelpful? And ultimately what I want to show you by the end of our time together is what the goal of preaching is. It's not so much to look at the preacher. It's not primarily fancy educational material. And I want to show you what Luke gives for us here in John's ministry, what John intends to do when God calls him to the work. All right? Let's pray. Father, for these few minutes, as we look at your word here today, Father, we pray that you would make it clear and plain to us, that your spirit would open your word to our eyes, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that uh, we would leave this place with greater joy and greater confidence of the gospel message, that we would gain a greater understanding of who you are and what you've done through your son, that uh, even today as folks come into this place to hear uh, the preaching of God's word, Father, that, that even now you would remove obstacles, that you would tear down strongholds, that your word would go forth pure and clear like lightning and strike to the hearts of the people in this room that we would know forgiveness of sins, that we would know redemption and reconciliation with you, that we would have our eyes turned to Jesus Christ 
So Father, I pray that that would happen. Only you can do that through the power of your spirit and through the power of your word. We submit ourselves to it. We ask for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Luke chapter 3. You all there? Luke 3, I want you to see just how it starts because Luke starts, Luke, uh, Luke starts chapter 3 the same way he has started in chapter 1 and chapter 2 with a time stamp. If you remember how Luke chapter 1 starts, Luke chapter 1 starts like this, in the days of Herod the king of Judea there was a priest named Zechariah, remember that? Luke chapter 2 starts like this, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Luke chapter 3 starts in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now we've had some political shakeup or change that's happened since the angels sung to the shepherds. We're 18 years into the future and there's been some political movement that Luke uh, summarizes for us in this passage. He does it in such a way really for two reasons, which the second of which will be clear in a second. But the first reason he does it is to give us a historical anchor. He lets us know, he gives us the names of individuals, uh, really six of them, who were alive at this time and place. So when Luke writes this to the greater Gentile world, they would know, ah, yes, I know who those leaders are, I know who those rulers were, I knew who these high priests were. It gives us an anchor. So all that Luke is about to tell us happens about A.D. 26 to about 29. So let me give you these, these leaders as we begin uh, he gives you two groups of leaders. One are political rulers of his day. And then he gives you religious leaders in his day. Let's start with the political leaders. The 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Here's the political landscape that Luke paints for us. Tiberius Caesar is not Caesar Augustus. Tiberius Caesar is the son-in-law of Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus uh, had planned to pass on his kingdom and the emperorship to his uh, son. His son died and his stepson now became in line. And that's who Tiberius Caesar is. He's the emperor over Rome. He's the top dog. Now through Tiberius Caesar, you have governing that happens all throughout the Roman uh, provinces. And those are the people that you're introduced to next here. Number two, you have Pontius Pilate. He's a pretty recognizable biblical figure. You remember Pontius Pilate? He shows up later in this book pretty significantly as the one who washes his hands and allows Jesus to be crucified. Pontius Pilate rules, or uh, essentially is called a governor or a prefect, over the area of Judea, which is southern Israel. There are two types of leaders that happened or the, that were in charge during uh, Rome that worked underneath the emperor and underneath the senate. They were either military generals or they were administrative leaders. Pontius Pilate is an administrative leader. He makes sure that taxes uh, are gathered, that uh, issues in the city are taken care of. He's essentially a politician. He's a political leader in charge under Rome's rule in the area of Judea. We also have Herod. This is not the Herod that, that uh, slaughtered the babies. This is his son. Herods have been in charge for three su successive generations. This is the Herod that Jesus will call a fox. Herod is over the uh, area of Galilee. These guys are called tetrarchs, which means leader of a fourth, which means you're going to have four, you with me, four groups, four guys? You with, okay, right? Really tough, right? Just track with me. Herod's a tetrarch of Galilee, which is the northern part. He, he operates in the northern area around the Sea of Galilee. You've got another group of people, Philip. Philip is well known because his wife was stolen by his brother, Herod, which doesn't 
I don't know what that says about you. Other than you get rebuked by John the Baptist, which will end chapter 3. Uh, Philip is the tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachantus. Those are parts that are east and northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And number four, we have Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene, which the only Abilene I know is in Texas, and I couldn't find it on the biblical atlas, which a lot of people can't. This is a, a relatively unknown biblical figure. But you have these individuals put in place to show you that this is the political setup of the day. You have Pontius Pilate, you have Herod, you have Philip, and you have this guy Lysanias, who are essentially the political leaders in charge. So it's essentially our, Israel isn't that big. Israel's a little bit bigger than New Jersey, just to, for comparative reasons. So in a sense, it gives us who the mayor is. It gives us a sense of who the governor is. It gives us a sense of who our U.S. state, of, state representatives are. It gives us the political landscape of the time. You with me so far? Now, let's look at the religious landscape of the time. Here's the religious landscape that shows up in verse 2. During the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas. Caiaphas is Annas' son-in-law. Annas, the Jews typically believed that a high priest was in place and could call himself a high priest throughout the course of his whole life. It's kind of like the way we call ex-presidents. We still call them presidents. They may not be functioning in that official role and title, but they're viewed essentially as presidents of still retaining the title. Well, that's what you have in Annas and Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the son-in-law of Annas. Caiaphas is, is, uh, is well known. We'll see him toward the end of the book of Luke as well. He famously, as a high priest during his time, gives a prophecy that he gives to the, to the Jewish Sanhedrin saying it's beneficial that one man die for the people which ends up being uh, moving us toward the crucifixion of Christ. So he's a pretty significant figure as well. But what I want you to see, are you interested in the politics and the history so far? Isn't this great? Aren't you glad you came to church? Um, what I want to show you here as we begin and get in really to the meat of what we're going to talk about today is that verse 1 begins with a grammatical signal. If you just look with me at verse 1 again, do you notice how 3 verse 1 begins with a preposition? Remember prepositions? I know, I'm making you work for it today. It begins with a preposition. Now, preposition is followed by nouns, which makes them the object of the preposition. Keep coming with me. Verse 2 begins with another what? Preposition. What's that preposition? During. During. Okay, so we have two prepositions that, that Luke has used so far, but what haven't we found yet? English teachers, what haven't we found yet? The subject and the, the verb. We have not found the main point of this sentence yet, have we? You with me? Okay. You have passed second grade English. Give yourselves a hand, that's awesome. While we have political context... And we have religious context. What we have not yet been introduced to is the subject of this sentence. Now, let's discover together what the subject of this sentence is. During the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came. Now, does that surprise you? I mean, all through the beginning of Luke's account so far, we have been prophetically interrupted. Have we not? Zechariah and Elizabeth, old faithful, going to church, doing the sacrifices, get interrupted by who? Gabriel shows up. Mary, on her own, in a place outside the Jewish uh, centers of worship, gets interrupted 
by Gabriel. The shepherds who were out watching their flocks by night get interrupted by information from the outside. All throughout the beginning of Luke's narrative, we have been consistently interrupted by God. And Luke, as he's worked to give us this account, has continued to draw our minds back to Malachi. He's drawn our minds back to David. He's drawn our minds back to Abraham, consistently putting in front of us, this is what God has said. Now, who cares? Who cares that the word of God is the subject of the sentence? Unless what Luke is trying to show us is the most significant political leaders of the day and the most significant religious leaders of the day are not the subject of the sentence. They're not the most important part of the sentence. They're not the place in which we should put our primary emphasis and focus. Can I do some preaching right here for just a minute? That the people of God should be more concerned not with what political leaders say or religious people who are popular in the media should say. The subject of the sentence of our lives ought to be the word of God. It ought to be taking up the central place in our life. Now what's interesting about the word of God is that the word of God comes. The word of God, an impersonal noun, does something. Isn't that weird? It's if the word of God pulls us by the shirt into the new narrative to what is happening in this moment. To where all of our eyes might be placed on what is happening politically. Listen, we all do this, right? We, you came into church this morning thinking about all sorts of stuff. Relationships, finances, uh, workplace troubles, your boss, your employees, uh, the people that uh, might be bothering you at this time. Some relationship, some marriage, some circumstance in your life. Something that somebody is saying on the news. And what Luke does for us is take all of those circumstances, all of the real, visible, authentic, time and date circumstances, and he merely takes them and makes them the setting in which the word of God coming operates. You see that? Well, who cares? Why does that matter? Do you believe that when we gather together as a church that God has something to say to you? I believe that. I, be I really do believe that. I believe that when we come together, that when we open God's word, that God has more to say to you today than any political, religious influencer that's out there. I believe that you can hear the word of God and he can speak directly to you. Do we believe that, church? Yeah, we believe that. So our church, what we do when we push the word of God center is to say, God, we're going to allow not our circumstances, not our relative understanding of what's happened, happening politically or religiously in our culture, we're going to push the word of God and make that the subject of our sentence. We're going to make that the main noun of our life. Can I use any more grammatical illustrations? You got what I'm saying? The word of God comes. Now, who does it come to? The activity in this sentence is surrounded, or it happens because the word of God acts. The word of God arrives. The word of God does something. It, it shows up in the culture. It shows up in the political landscape. It shows up in the religious landscape. God has something to say. Aren't we glad? God has something to say. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. Now, that's good to know, right? 
We've heard something about John in the past. We know that John's birth has been announced. We know that the angel gave him a prophetic calling. We know that Zechariah himself is saying that you will be the forerunner of the Messiah. So in a sense, we're reminded of the fact that is God's word still operating? Has God been faithful to his word to raise up John at just the right time to preach the message that God wants him to? He has. So God, has God been faithful to his word to Abraham? He has. Has he been faithful to his word to uh, David? He has. Has God been faithful to his word to Malachi? He has. Has God been faithful to his word in the past 18 years to bring John to the forefront of our minds to see what John's going to do as the forerunner? He has. The word of God continues to move us forward in this narrative. So you should see, look at that. God is faithful. God's coming through. God did exactly what God promised he will do. Wouldn't it be weird if you had all of these prophecies around John's life and then John just faded? He never showed up. He got lost in the wilderness. We don't know what happened with him. He had a lot of great stuff in his youth. No, God's going to fulfill the purposes he has for John in his life. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. Where did it come to? Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that the word of God shows up in a place of no political influence? Isn't it interesting that the word of God comes to an individual who's been in the wilderness for the past 30 plus years? Outside of the religious establishment of the day. Now, I don't think this is an issue of popularity. Do you? As if the only people who are really preaching the word of God have 14 followers on Twitter. I don't think that's what we're trying to learn from this. What I think it's trying to show us is that God's word has something to say about everywhere else. That God's word has something to say. Well, well we have some conflict in this book over the, uh, with the political leaders of the day. You're about to see it at the end of chapter 3. That John the Baptist is going to call out a political leader for committing adultery. Does, are we going to have some conflict with the religious leaders of the day? We are, aren't we? We're going to have some problems when the word of God shows up and starts flipping over tables and saying, you've made my father's house a house of commerce, not a house of prayer. So we're going to have some conflict. Now, let me ask you, has God done some things in the wilderness before in your Bible? Oh, man, has he? Hasn't he? You ever been, boy, let me, I won't belabor this point. You remember Deuteronomy chapter 6 where God says, I humbled you and tested you when you went through the desert wanderings to discover what was in your heart and to let you know, I let you, God says, I let you hunger so that you might know that man might not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What does God do in the wilderness? What does God do when he takes away your political strength, your financial strength, your relational strength, and he leads you into the wilderness? What happens there? You get real serious about God, don't you? You get real hungry for God. What do you have to say? God, you've taken away the things that are easy for me to lean on. And now here comes the word of God out of the wilderness. And this guy is a preacher. John is your first New Testament preacher. And he does not pull punches. You know why? Because he's been living in the wilderness. He don't care. He's eating bugs and honey. You think he cares what you think? Now, where am I? John. Oh, uh, let, me, let me make one, one point about John too. John, remember how Zechariah said, John, that you will, uh, you will be prophet of, Zechariah says, you'll be prophet of the Most High. Remember that? One of the things that commentators note in this passage, especially with the timestamps, is, is we are being introduced to a New Testament prophetic figure. Because when Luke writes for us that this is the time 
uh, and the political leaders that are in charge when John shows up on the scene. What he's doing is putting John in the company of your Old Testament prophets. Let me just read to you a couple of these. You don't need to turn there. Here's Jeremiah 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth at the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of God came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Well, Jeremiah was a prophet, right? And we have time stamp, political leaders, the word of God coming, and this is what God has to say. Here's what Isaiah 1 says. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Okay. Let me give you one more. Here's Hosea. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. What is Luke doing? He's letting us know that we're going to give you time stamp markers of religious and political leaders, and at the same time, we're going to validate the fact that this individual is a prophet of God, which we've known since the beginning of John's birth. But when people start experiencing this preacher who comes out of the wilderness and preaching like his hair's on fire, we have to reckon with who he is. This is one of the main questions people come and ask John. John, who are you? And he says, I am, you'll see this in a minute, I'm the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. So we have an affirmation, this is an Old Testament, or a, a new version of an Old Testament prophet of God. You with me? Now, let's look at his ministry. Are you with me so far? Okay, let's look at verse 3. He went into all the region around the Jordan. Now you have, in, in Israel, you have the Sea of Galilee, you have the Jordan River, and you have the Dead Sea. And John ministers in the wilderness around the Jordan area. But John's ministry now begins not just with the word of God pulling him forward in the narrative. Our eyes, now the, the word of God is the source and the center it's the authority out of which John speaks. But John has a very particular ministry. He's got a very particular calling. Our setting is in the wilderness in the region around the Jordan, but he's proclaiming. Essentially, he's preaching. His job as a preacher is to proclaim something of vital importance. He's a herald. He's an individual that shows up on the scene and does not add, does not subtract, does not adjust, does not modify the word of the Lord that has been given to him. He preaches it clean and clear. Do we need that today? Do we need some people, some, some people who preach clearly? This is what God has to say. That's what John does. Now watch his ministry. He proclaims a baptism. Let me just summarize his ministry here for us real quick. He, pro he proclaims a baptism, which is a response of the people who are coming to him. What kind of baptism is it? It's a baptism of? It's a baptism of repentance, which means that's the subjective experience of the individual. John is saying you ought to be baptized because you are repentant. John has a real problem with people coming out to his ministry who refuse to repent for sin. You'll see that next week. But part and parcel of coming out to John and listening to his preaching is recognizing that his preaching has an impact on the heart that results in a response. So that baptism and the heart response of the individual who confesses, repents, and forsakes their sin are put right together. Can you... Uh, in John's ministry, you can't get baptized without being repentant, right? 
It, they're, they're put right together for John. So John says, here's what you ought to be doing. You ought to be repenting. Now, this gives us an idea as to what preaching is meant to do. We all love to talk about the good news, right? We all love to talk about forgiveness of sins. We all love to talk about reconciliation. We all love to talk about redemption. But all of those conversations have an have implication behind them. The implication behind them is that somebody has sinned. The implication behind them is that somebody has broken fellowship with God. The implication behind them is that you have sin that you need to repent of. Amen? So when John goes about his preaching ministry, he's not just announcing good news. He is preaching the hard part, which is called the bad news. He's preaching that you are out of touch with God. You and God are not okay. Your relationship with God is disjointed and broken and you have fallen short of the glory of God and you need to repent and therefore be baptized. See, this is an essential part of, pre if you're going to preach at any part of the Bible, inevitably you're going to come across parts of the Bible that are going to confront you on the fact that you are a sinner. You ever, ever, ever that happened to you when you read the Bible? Where you go, oh gosh, oh, I can't read that. Uh, man, that's good for somebody else. This is a part of what good preaching is. Good preaching has to identify the, the sin, Paul says, that so easily entangles. Do you have that? Gosh, I have that. And John's ministry comes blasting onto the scene in the midst of religious leaders and political leaders. And the thing that John talks about is not the political culture of the day. He's not talking about Ananias and, uh, An that was right, different person, Annas and Caiaphas. He's not talking about any of that. He's talking about, about the fact that you're a sinner. He's talking about the fact, does anybody like talking about sin? I don't like talking about sin. And here comes John making it the primary focus of his ministry that you are out of step with God. You have failed to live up to the standards that you live by. You've failed to live up to God's standards and you need to repent. And therefore exhibit your repentance with this baptism. But there's another part of this, this, this story, isn't there? All right, you know, we could stop right there, close in prayer. We'd all feel bad and we'd go, that was a great sermon. I felt real bad and I went home. <laughs> and that's a lot of times what people do with preaching. They go, how bad can I make them feel? You know what the problem is? You're a sinner. You've been sinning a lot, real bad, real bad sinner. I'm not sure we can let you in here, you're so bad. And they think that preaching is somehow identification of sin. I, gosh, I, I had this thought a couple of weeks ago where I don't want my ministry career to be sin identifier. I don't want to go for the next how many ever years God gets me and say somehow, hey, our culture's changing and it's real bad out there. You know what they're doing out there? They're sinning. Aren't you glad we're in here and we're not sinning like they're sinning out there? Let me give you 17 things our culture's doing wrong. Is that ministry? God in heaven. Is that, is that the hope that we have? To the, now, do we need to talk about sin? Yeah, we got to talk about sin. But the remainder of John's preaching ministry, look at it. You got the response of baptism. You got repentance that's happening. But God in heaven, John gives relief. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that God gives relief that the ministry of John the Baptist with his hair on fire and bugs in his teeth and yelling at people ultimately results in the last part of verse 3? The forgiveness of sin. Is there a better word in the Bible than your sins are forgiven? 
Are there better psalms than Psalm 32? Blessed is the one whose transgression is covered, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit is no deceit. How about Psalm 103? He doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Isn't that good news? Man, that's good news. Now, we got to talk about sin, but we also got to talk about the fact that your sin can be healed, restored, forgiven, and reconciled. Amen? We got to talk about that too. Now, look at verse 4. As it is written. Why in the world does Luke do this? Why does Luke give us an, ad is, an a, as it is written to explain John the Baptist's ministry? In Matthew and in Mark, John the Baptist is viewed with the leather and the belt and the camel hair and the bugs and honey as being somebody who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. You know why? Because that's what Elijah wore. But Luke doesn't give us that. Luke, in John the Baptist's brand new, God-ordained, word of God coming ministry, lets us know that John is not the first preacher. John is the next preacher in line with a God who is not different in your Old Testament than the New Testament. Luke roots Jesus, I'm sorry, John's ministry to Isaiah's ministry. And he does it in such a beautiful way. If you haven't read Isaiah 40, we're going to read it here for a second. I just want to show you what Luke does to give us the flavor of this God bringing John the Baptist onto the scene. See, good preaching has to root itself in the fact that we have been given the word of God for the last 2,000 years and we've got to preach it, right? So the good preaching goes back to the word of the Lord came. God said, as it is written. See, that's where good preaching comes from. You don't want my thoughts on what the Seahawks are doing this year. Do you care? No. I don't even care what the Seahawks are doing this year. What are the Seahawks doing? Is anybody, are they in the Super Bowl? They're out of the Super Bowl. Who cares? Does that matter? I don't know. Luke says, it was written down. This is not a new idea. As it is written in the book of the words, watch this, of Isaiah the prophet. Do you have terms that you've heard before just in Luke chapter 3? So far that we've learned in Luke 1 through 3, we've already heard about a prophet who's going to be the prophet of the Most High. We've already heard about the word of God coming. And now we're going to root our hope in the fact that this God is doing something new in John's day that he did back in Isaiah's day. Isaiah 700 years before John the Baptist shows up on the scene. As it is written in the words of Isaiah the prophet. Look at what it says. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now, if you don't know the book of Isaiah, you can go and read this later. But Isaiah 40 is a pivot point in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 40 to the end of the book of Isaiah, it contains some of the most beautiful Old Testament imagery about God and who he is and what he did. I mean, it is glorious. We read all of Isaiah 59 in here a few weeks ago, and it was just about the power of God coming to save, redeem his people, restoring the breach, fixing the problems. All of Isaiah 1 through 39 is God judging people, crushing the nations, judging his own people. And Isaiah 40 verse 1 begins like this. We pick up in 3 through 5, but here's how Isaiah 40, I'll just read it to you. Isaiah 40 verse 1 begins. Comfort. 
Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double from all her sins. 40 verse 3. Let's come back. Here's what Luke says. A voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now John looks like a pretty intense individual. But what's the heart of God behind John? The heart of God behind John is comfort for his people. The heart behind John is forgiveness for their sins. The heart behind John is not the great sin identifier who's weird in his culture. But he is preaching that the word of God has come to give comfort and hope for the sinners. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, what does it mean to prepare people to meet the Lord? What has John been doing? John has been out there proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins to prepare the hearts of those people who come to John and go, John, I have failed to keep the law. People stream out to John in his ministry. We haven't kept the law. We haven't been faithful. We haven't done what God has said. And here's John calling sin, sin. And at the same time saying your repentance comes with a promise that your sins can be forgiven. And now, as Luke bolts John's ministry to Isaiah's ministry and puts them together so that we would see what is happening, he gives you a visual. He gives you a picture of what it might mean for repentance to really take root in the center of our lives. Because that's really what it means to prepare ourselves to meet God, isn't it? That we come to the Word of God and we come to God, all of us know inherently that we are not perfect individuals. And we all have to make sense of the reality that we know that in the last hour, in the last day, in the last week, in the last month, that we have fallen short of the glory of God. And I want to show you visually what repentance does. What does repentance do in my relationship with God? Look at the visual that Luke gives us in verse 5. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain shall be filled. And hill shall be made low, and the crooked sh shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. You ever drive a car that's out of alignment on a rough road? You ever do that? And you're just angry? Because you're like, I should have gotten the alignment done, and why don't they pave these roads? And I can't believe they don't take care of the roads. What in the world is repentance doing in our life? Why is it that we would go back to Isaiah chapter 40 and repentance in the mouth of John the Baptist would remind us of this visual, physical experience where we can take rough roads and make them smooth, where we can take crooked roads and they can become straight, where we can take high places that are tough to get over and find a way through, that we can take low places and bring them up so that the visual that you and I should have here in this passage is that places that were before covered in obstacles, covered in difficulty, 
covered in impassable ways where I don't know which way to go and I can't get around the obstacles in my life can be solved and restored and brought to peace and easy passage through repentance. Isn't that what this says? Have you tried repentance? I mean, let's be honest. You know that that thing that you're grumbling over in your life right now is not repentance, right? You know that the complaining about the people in your life who ought to be different than you think they should be is not repentance. You know that your addiction to what people think about you and your love of your own reputation is not repentance. You know that our unwillingness to serve others with the gifts and talents and finances that God has given us is not repentance. You know that our tendency to justify our sins and to explain away our gossip is not repentance, but rather they're obstacles. They're barriers in my relationship with God. You know your critical spirit is not that you're a truth teller. It's that you need to repent. That your bitterness at God for the way that he runs the world is sin and you need to repent. Your love of self rather than love of others is sin and you need to repent. Because what John shows us and what Luke shows us here in this passage is really the impossible feat of any and every preacher. I come here and I, we stand around here at 8 o'clock and we pray for you as you're getting up and preparing to come to this place. We pray that God would do something in your life and in your heart that only he can accomplish. I get up here and I talk about God and his word and I try to make it as clear as possible. And I pray that God might do something in your heart. I preach it clear and plain, as far as I can tell, as much as I can understand it, that we would be able as a church to name sin and to push one another toward repentance. But at the end of the day, as much as we identify sin, as much as we lay hold of the hope of forgiveness, something has to happen in your heart that causes you to repent. And I can't do that for you. I can't. All I can do is lay out the truth of God and go, God, don't let sin have the last word in their heart. God, don't let this sin in our church that so easily entangles bind us at the ankles and cause us to walk difficultly throughout our lives. God, tear down obstacles and unbelief and bitterness and skepticism and gossip and slander and anger and all of those things that prevent us from really the goal of John's ministry. And the goal of John's ministry is verse 6. Do you know that? Preaching doesn't stop with identification of sin or even the promise of forgiveness. That's not even, all, that's okay, but there's something way better. Do you know that? There's something way better that as I have gone through years of listening to preachers, there are moments where in the preaching something happens that I can't control and I didn't see and it has nothing to do with the preacher or how good they are. And it shows up in verse 6. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. Do you hear me? All flesh. Do you know what that is? That's a subjective experience of the word of God working in your heart. Peter says, though you don't see him, you love him. 
And though you don't now see him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible, receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. See, the goal and the hope of all true preaching is that you would experience God. That's the goal. I can't make that happen. All I can do is make it plain, make it clear, call out sin, say we need to repent, acknowledge the the promise of forgiveness that's available in Jesus' name, but ultimately what is happening in preaching is my hope, and I know your hope, is that you might know God. Is that you might be able to see and hear and experience God in ways that you haven't before. And the unspoken reality of John's ministry here is that that happens only to the extent that we're willing to repent. What's the one thing I avoid in my spiritual life? I love learning in my spiritual life. I love learning new things about God's word. I love learning new patterns, new uh, understandings, new connections across the scriptures. You know what I avoid? Repenting. Why? Because I have to talk about me and I have to get honest about me and I have to confess things about me that I don't like all that much. It's way easier to learn and get smart, isn't it? Than to repent. It's way easier to see new things about Jesus and who he is. And I didn't know that about Jesus. Then it is for me to be honest about the fact that I need to repent and sorrow over my sin. But on the other side of repentance, if we have the courage to say about ourselves what God says about us, the promise at the end of John's ministry in verse six is that we would see God. What do we have to offer the world except that? What do we have to offer one another Accept that. What hope is there for a Christian if we spend all of our time focused on upstanding, right, truth-filled morality without doing the hard work of repenting? Because when we do that, when we experience the process of, God, I am not who I want to be. God, I'm not who I ought to be. And God, I confess but I'm a control freak. God, I confess that I love my ways rather than your ways. God, I confess my gossip and my slander and my anger and my bitterness at you for the way that you run the world. God, would you please forgive me? And when that happens, the experience of our heart, it's like the eyes of our heart are able to see something about God that we've never been able to see before. See, that's what I want for our church. I don't want you to get smart. I don't want to just get smart. I don't want to spend the next number of years that God gives me or God gives us with this pseudo-righteousness. But I want to know down in the deep bones of my heart that my sins are forgiven, that I know God. And that's what I want for you. That's what I want for us, right? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us the courage to repent. Father, we acknowledge even now that we are sinners and there are sins that we hold dear, that we refuse to repent, that we refuse to talk about, that we refuse to confess, that we refuse to turn from, that we love them too much. Father, for all of us in the room, that there might be some key conversations that happen in our life with you. That as we preach the word of God, that you would lay us open, that we'd be able to acknowledge sin that so easily entangles, and that you would give us freedom, that you would remind us of forgiveness, that you, as John says in the beginning of his ministry, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. 
Would that be the hope of our hearts, Father, as we preach, as we disciple, as we encourage one another with your word? Would we respond as people who are willing to repent for our sin? And oh God, would you give us eyes to see you in new ways? Would the depth of our spiritual experience of you and seeing Jesus Christ, who loved us, who died for us, Would that experience capture our attention and our affection? Would we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our sins are forgiven, that we are set free, that Jesus is good? Father, capture our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.